God's people changed thousands of years of tradition and began to gather on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, Sunday. Why? What changed? What happened? Somebody had a good argument. Somebody had a good case while Sunday would be better. You know, one day Sunday would be a great thing in the South with fried chicken and families gathered. So let's go ahead and do that now. No. The thing that changed was that Jesus walked out of the tomb. And they, they recognized this, is, this changes everything. Now our rest isn't on a particular day. Our rest is in Him. Him. And we rest in Him constantly. On the third day, He came out of the grave, forever changing how we relate to sin, Satan, and death. I was having a conversation with my four-year-old this morning, and me and Jennifer were talking to Noah, and, uh, you know, do you know what today is, Noah? Yes. What is it? I don't know. Okay. Well, today's Easter. You know what's significant about that? No. Like, well, okay, we've been trying to tell him, but oh, that's all right, he's four. So th- this is the day Jesus, who died on the cross, rose from the dead and came out of the grave. And so he looks at Jennifer and says, how did he do that? And then she looks at me, how did he do that? Well, Jesus has more power than even death, Noah. Jesus has more power than even Satan. Jesus is the strongest king in all the universe. Of course, they've been working on memorizing the Lord's Prayer, and and he said, Jesus even beat the evil one. You know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So that's, that's the bad guy in Noah's mind. Like, yes, he crushed the evil one when he walked out of the tomb and died on the cross. All the redemptive work of Jesus was accomplished when he said, it is finished. Easter Sunday was the stamp of approval of that reality. He put to death, death. He crushed the head of the serpent. The curse has been reversed. It is finished, set in motion, the ultimate culmination when all things will be made new. The kingdom of God is coming and is happening little by little, spreading throughout all nations right now until one day He returns and the kingdom of God is fully consummated and all things will be new. When He walked out of the tomb, it was the exclamation point sent around the universe. The good news is true. This is why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 that our faith hinges on the resurrection. To Christians in a church who are struggling to believe the dead could be raised, Paul said, if the dead can't be raised, then Christ can't be raised. And if Christ can't be raised, our faith is futile. This is all in vain. In other words, this is a complete waste of time if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Every other religion is a bunch of rules you follow in order to become a good person. But not Christianity. Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Islam, Buddhism, atheism, paganism, pantheism, just name the ism. It's all, I follow these rules and it makes me a good person, I hope. I don't really know. Christianity is not about following rules, it's about following Him. The only one who did what He did, said what He said, and accomplished what He accomplished by dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead. This is what we celebrate today. And if it is true... If he really did rise from the dead, and the best explanation for what happened in the first century is what the Bible says, if that's true, then it's all true. It's all true, including the fact he's coming again. Easter Sunday is what we is a day we celebrate that, but we really celebrate it every Sunday. Easter Sunday is also a day that marks one of the big holidays in our culture. So as soon as the Valentine's candy 
gets bought up, you see the pastel candy showing up in our stores. So the entire culture is getting ready for Easter Sunday, or if they want to call it Spring Sunday or whatever they, they call it. But after today, we're going to be headed to, to cookouts. Memorial Day, summer's coming, July 4th is coming, you'll start seeing that show up in the stores. But it's a day that many families will gather at someone's house and share a meal, maybe some Easter presents. I'll leave here, go, go spend time with my, my parents and my siblings and all their family. My grandparents will spoil the grandkids with all these Easter baskets and all this candy that I, of course, will have to sample and, and approve before they can have any of the candy. But the day we worship the Lord as the people of God, Sundays, Sunday worship, and family are just two of the many realities of our life that Jesus came and gave deeper and greater meaning through his gospel ministry. Family is something Jesus redefined with a deeper and greater meaning through his gospel work. And that's what we see in today's passage. We'll be focusing on uh, verses 20 and 21 and then skipping down to 31 through 35. But I'm going to read the whole section just to get context. So beginning in verse 20. Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that there was not even, they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan is, is opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions but unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly I tell you, People will be forgiven for all their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, Who? are my mother and my brothers. Looking at those sitting in the circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. As we close out chapter 3 this morning, this entire last section has been a, a little bit like Lord Lunatic Liar. If you remember the famous dilemma that C.S. Lewis presented several decades ago where you cannot say Jesus is just a good man, just a good teacher. He has not left that option open to us. To say what he said and do what he did means he is either a deceiver, a liar, a con man who's trying to pull the wool, wool over people's eyes. He is certifiably a lunatic, crazy, who believes that he's God, or he is indeed Lord. It's all true. And you have this unfolding in this second section of chapter 3. After Jesus calls the 12 disciples who follow him to know him and carry on his work, they saw him as Lord. We will follow this man and give our lives to make him known and to know him. Then Mark records two other responses Jesus is experiencing. The first response, Jesus is a liar. Jeff walked you through that last week, the outright rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders. After seeing all that Jesus had done and taught, they met, they discussed, they deliberated, and came down from Jerusalem with their final verdict. You are demon-possessed, and you, in fact, are working for Satan. They revealed their hearts were so hard that they were beyond hope, and so Jesus passed final judgment on them. 
You have committed the unforgivable sin. You can't be forgiven. Your heart is that hard. So you have true followers, his disciples and apostles, earlier in chapter 3. You have the disciples contrasted with those who rejected him and said Jesus was a liar. But now you have the true disciples contrasted with another group of people who also did not believe at this time, Jesus' family. Who in this passage thought in verse 21 he was a lunatic. He is crazy. He is out of his mind. Now, this is what is so surprising. We get the opposition of the religious leaders, but his mom and his brothers and his sisters, and this was also surprising to the early church who was receiving this letter for the first time. You see, Jesus' family eventually came to believe, but it would only seemingly come after the resurrection. You have Mary gathered with those in Acts 1, waiting for the Holy Spirit. You have James, the half-brother of Jesus, mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as one of the key witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. If the half-brother of Jesus saw Jesus resurrected and believed he had been resurrected, that's strong evidence that Jesus was who he said he was. You have the same James and and Jesus' other half-brother Jude, writing two books of the New Testament. And so the Christians in Rome who are receiving this gospel of Mark, they would have only known Jesus' mother and siblings as followers of Jesus. This would have been surprising to them to hear that there was a time in which they did not, in fact, believe. But it would also be important for them to hear this, to know that Jesus has come to give us a family that's not rooted in the blood and DNA that we share in our bodies, but a family that shares in the blood and the life of Jesus. That this is our shared relationship with Jesus that he has come to give us. You see, being a part of his biological family wasn't enough to know Jesus or understand what he was doing. Notice again, verse 20 and 21. Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. What is he doing? Jesus returns to a home, probably Peter's home in Capernaum, his home base for this time of his ministry. The crowd's crush him. It's so bad, he can't even eat. Now, that's, that's bad, right? His family comes to seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. The literal translation, we might say crazy, lunatic, berserk. But they thought Jesus had lost his mind, so they wanted to grab him, seize him, take him home, and get him some help. Something's not right. What is he doing allowing this movement of people to crush in and follow him like this? Now, this refers just to his family, but it could have been extended family, like cousins uh, and so forth. Now, at the end of the chapter, it gets more specific. It says his mother and brothers and sisters came to find him. Again, their biological relationship to Jesus did not aid in their grasp or understanding of what he was doing. Mary comes with the brothers of Jesus. The easiest, most plain understanding of this text is that Mary conceived Uh, As a virgin, through the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and then after she had Jesus, her and Joseph had other biological kids. You really have to get creative with the Bible to make a case that Mary never had more kids or was always a virgin. That just doesn't seem to be what the Bible teaches. And the Bible is our highest and sole authority for knowing who God is. And so his family comes to look for him, and they're on the outside looking in, while his disciples, the crowd of disciples, are sitting close to him. Very intentional language by Mark. His family's on the outside. The close disciples were on the inside next to him. 
Mary and the brothers on the outside, the close disciples. Mary and the brothers were not trying to seize him as they were back in verse 21. But they believe because they are his earthly family, they have access. They have a special relationship with him. And Jesus begins now to show them and the disciples that there is a relationship with Jesus that supersedes even biological family. Now this is amazing to me, especially Mary, considering all that she knew about him. Considering that she was visited uh, before his birth by an angel to tell her, this is what's about to happen to you, which is the only way a young teenage girl would believe what was about to happen to her, is if an angel did show up and tell her, this baby that's about to just show up in your womb, it's from God. And this is who Jesus is, and this is what he's going to do. You're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You might remember Luke 2, the visit of the shepherds. They're in the stable-like environment where Jesus was born. They're having the baby, they're nursing the baby, caring for Jesus, and these men, strangers, just show up and start worshiping him as Lord. And they, too, have been visited by an angel, just like Joseph was visited by an angel. That's going to like leave a mark. If you're having a baby in a hospital and strangers show up in your hospital room and begin to worship your baby as God in the flesh, you're going to remember that. You might remember a week after he was born, they took him to the temple to be circumcised and to present an offering, and Simeon and Anna both came up and saw Jesus, the weak old baby, and basically told Joseph and Mary, He is the one. We are very old. We've been waiting for this day, and this day has arrived. Our eyes have set our eyes have been set on the Savior of Israel. He is the one. Later, in his, they were visited by the wise men who came from a different nation, far away, even with their pagan religion, and were led through their pagan religion to worship Jesus and bring these gifts that had great significance for the identity of Christ. And of course, we know when he was about 12, he was impressing the religious leaders in the temple, being about his father's business. That's all we know about Jesus until he shows up to be baptized by John in the wilderness at the age of 30. We assume he grew up and lived a sinless life but didn't do teachings or miracles until he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and began his ministry. So while his family certainly had some idea that he's not just an ordinary person because he was sinless, okay, you raise a, a, a child and they commit no sins, they do everything right, something's different with this kid, right? It's the people that know us best who know more of our sins. They see it all. When Jesus is on, on trial and they're trying to find witnesses to prove he was, in fact, a sinner, his family should have been first in line. Oh, we could tell you he's not sinless. But they had nothing because he was sinless, never committed a sin. So they had some idea he's not ordinary, but they would not fully understand his ministry and what he had come to do. You have the episode of Luke records in Luke 4 of Jesus going back to his hometown synagogue and claiming to be the Messiah, and all the townspeople saying, isn't this Mary and Joseph's boy? And in his own hometown, probably a population of less than 100 people who saw him grow up, they rejected him as Messiah. They didn't get it. And it seems as though, even though Mary was at the cross when Jesus died, she didn't really believe until he rose from the dead. The brothers didn't really believe until he rose from the dead. The disciples didn't really believe until he rose from the dead. And Jesus appeared and began to teach them, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. If Jesus had predicted three times, I'm going to die and rise from the dead on the third day, if they really believed it and understood it, they would have been outside the tomb. Yeah, I know, we're not really sad because, just wait, just wait, this is going to be great. They weren't. They were hiding. They were afraid. They thought they were next. 
because they didn't get it. Because in first century Judaism, there was zero concept of a dying and resurrecting Messiah. They just didn't have any place for that. It's hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's not clear, and they missed it. Even his own family. And they had no concept of this new family Jesus came to create. And so, of course, Mary and his brothers begin to see him and teach and do miracles, and crowds flock to him, and they, we want an audience too. Of course he'll let us in. He's our family, but not anymore. Jesus begins teaching that he's come to create something new and greater than just a temporary earthly family. Jesus is beginning to teach about the church and the eternal spiritual family. Now, this is even more shocking when you see the high place that the biological family has in Scripture. God created the family before he created the government and other institutions. When he put Adam and Eve together as a, a husband and wife. All through the scriptures, we're taught to have healthy, vibrant marriages and to be healthy, vibrant parents. And there's all kinds of wisdom literature to help us to do that. God wants our homes, moms and dads and kids, to flourish, to be incredibly healthy. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to the leadership of your husbands and respect them. That's, you know, children, obey and honor your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Tons of instruction about how to do family really well. So it's not as though the biological earthly family isn't important. It doesn't have a, a high place, especially in a, a day and age in our culture where that's being redefined with something that's unbiblical. But while the Bible is clear in elevating the family to an important God-honoring design, the Bible is also clear there's a relationship that supersedes even the earthly family. And that's our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If we ever have to choose allegiance between Christ and our family, we always choose Christ. Period. It's not even something you've got to pray about. If obeying your family or, or falling in line with your family causes you to disobey God, you disobey your family and obey God. Now, that's not something foolish or immature. You know, a teenager says, God gave me a vision that I should be able to stay up all night and do whatever I want to do on my phone, mom or dad. So if you make us, you won't let me do that, you're disobeying, that's not that. It's not foolish or immature. They should, they should hardly come into conflict in homes where Christ is loved and adored. But if it does, you choose Christ. It may not seem like a big deal for us in the Bible Belt, where so many people are Christian, but it has been for millions of our brothers and sisters throughout the history of the church. It is that way for so many of our brothers and sisters around the world today. Jennifer and I used to live in South Louisiana uh, early in the days of our marriage, and our Baptist church was filled with older people who had been saved by Jesus out of Roman Catholicism. And they would lose family relationships. They would lose these bonds that God had given them to grow up in because they had Catholic families who said, you're a Protestant, you're not Catholic, we don't want anything to do with you. That wasn't true of every Catholic family, but it was true for a lot of them. That was their testimony. In places today where being a Christian is illegal, you can lose jobs, be kicked out of your family, be thrown into prison. Knowing that God has given you a new family that will last forever means everything. And think about the Christians who are reading Mark, living in Rome, undergoing persecution. Maybe they are torn between allegiance to Christ that will lead to death and allegiance to family that will allow them to stay alive to know that even the family of Jesus had to bow before him as Lord and Savior, this was a huge reminder to them 
that Jesus had come to create a new family that lasts forever. It's huge to those who grow up in homes where your biological family is broken by sin to such a degree that you might be the only Christian. Marriages that are broken and there's abuse. To know that Jesus came to give us a family that can mend some of those wounds. Most of you know we have three, biologic, uh, three adopted children. They're six, four, and two. We talk about their biological family. We have relationships with their biological family. We talk about their bio moms, bio dads. We pray for them. But we haven't had hard conversations yet. That's coming. Why did I grow up in this family and not that family? Well, this is why. We think adoption's good. If you look at the stats of kids who stay in the foster system their entire life, we think an adoptive family is healthier, gives them a better chance to be stable and, and, and healthy, long-lasting. But there's still some brokenness we're going to have to explain to them one day. And God's going to have to heal their hearts. Think about how strange this was to the first century Jews. In Judaism, you become a Jew when you're born. It was an ethnic family. Jewish blood passed from one generation to the next. Now, you, there was a way to be baptized and become Jewish in the Old Testament, but most of it was just ethnic, passed from one generation to the next. And to have this man coming along, claiming who's Jew, claiming to be the Messiah, son of God, and he's distancing himself from his own family, showing that they don't even have the right relationship with him to be part of his family at that time. Teaching things like he taught to Nicodemus in John 3, unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Your first birth as a Jew is not enough. You must be born again, Nicodemus. You must be born again, Mary, James, Jude, and my other siblings. Born from above, made into a new creature from the inside out, and then adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. Look, many of us born in the Bible Belt with parents and grandparents who attended church, we love and value and appreciate, and we should. This tradition of faith that we've been handed down, this evidence of God's grace at work in our life before we even existed. When your parent or your grandparent or great-grandparent loved and followed Jesus and taught his kids to love and follow Jesus or her kids, and you inherit this, you show up uh, in, a, in a, a car seat, you don't even know you're here, this little baby right here. She doesn't even know she's here, and she's being around the people of God and being loved by the people of God and experiencing the, the love of Christ when she doesn't even realize it yet. Waiting for the day you'll be able to tell her, here's the good news of Jesus. Repent and believe because you too are a sinner who need a Savior. So we value and we appreciate this heritage of faith that's passed down to us. But understand, you will not get into heaven riding on the coattails of your parents or grandparents. You won't. You will not make it to heaven riding on their coattails. You will stand alone before God and give an account. And by God's grace, you'll be able to say, I, I, I lay all of my trust before Jesus Christ. He's the only way I make it. He's the only way I get in. Not mom's faith, not dad's faith, not mama and papa's faith. My faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only way I make it. There are other ways in which this teaching pushes back against some of the family idolatry that exists in our culture where biological family shows total, absolute loyalty to the point that sins are ignored or not confronted because we don't want to make the family look bad. This is our tribe. I could talk about our tribe, but you can't. Blood is thicker than water. I'm going to back my family even if they are wrong or sinful because they're family. I can't tell you how many times that issue's come up in years of almost 18 years of pastoring. 
How many times has come up in conversation? The number of times someone was struggling to make the right God-honoring decision, but they knew it was going to cause incredible tension in their family, and if they made that decision, they feared how their family would react. They would leave the church or raise a ruckus because family loyalty would be maintained at the expense of church unity, at the expense of holiness and purity before God. Our culture can also idolize family in the sense that family becomes a good excuse to get out of doing things that God may be calling you to do. We can't ever engage in the missional work of the church because we always have family stuff that's being scheduled and valued. That's not that we don't play sports. I coach a volleyball team. We play sports. My daughter's on a travel team. I'm gone on some Sundays. But when we go, we're still in the mission field. We're still living out our identity in Jesus Christ. And we, we have a church that other guys can lead when I'm not there. And it's not all the time, right? There's balance. There's healthy balance. We hope. I hope I'm doing it right. Don't know by God's grace. But to, for it to always be something that keeps us away. Family stuff sometimes provides a convenient excuse to get out of doing church stuff that frankly maybe we don't really want to do. I've seen people avoid short-term mission opportunities because husbands and wives didn't want to be separated from each other and sleep a night away from each other. Mission opportunities avoided because every night has to be family night. So we need the Spirit of God to help us find that necessary balance. The last thing that, that we would want is to avoid healthy relationships with our spouse and kids because you're always going and serving others. That's also a mistake. So there's two ditches, stay out of them. It's a constant issue in, in conversation with my wife that I'm not pastoring other people better than I'm pastoring my wife and my children. If she sees the other people getting the best of me and they're getting the leftovers... Oh, we're having a conversation. We're going to have a conversation. She's going to sit me down and be like, hey. It's a constant battle to make sure we're getting it right. Family is huge and important. A man can't be, you're looking for a pastor. A man can't be a pastor, an elder in a local church if he's not pastoring and shepherding his family. You want to see what kind of church you're going to be? Look at the way that he shepherds his wife and his kids. Are they thriving? Are they flourishing? Are they oppressed and beaten down and suffocating? Are they neglected? How a man pastors his wife and kids will tell you how a man will pastor your church. But check our hearts. Do we sometimes use family as an excuse to not engage in mission or serve others? It's noble because it's family, right? And God wants you to take your family with you on mission. We, God desires for us to have gospel-centered marriages and parenting and elevate the biological family to such a place that we are countercultural in our context, that people look at our marriages and our families and say, that's different. That doesn't look like all the other families that I'm aware of. So how do we do that? How do we stick out as families because of Jesus and his gospel? How can we do the normal things we do as families but infuse it with the gospel? Look at verse 34 and 35 again. Looking at those sitting in the circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. A genuine follower or disciple of Christ that has been born again will live to do the will of God. There will be fruits of obedience, fruits of repentance when we fail to obey, fruits of the Holy Spirit and our attitudes and motivations, fruits of joy and worship that come from Jesus being our King. Shared mission, that we give evidence that we know Jesus and we're doing his work. And we live that reality out in our city and our communities. Listen to how one author put it, describing the church as, as more than 
friends. The church itself is not made up of natural friends. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationalities, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus and they owe Him a common allegiance. In light of this fact, in light of the fact that they've all been loved by Jesus Himself, they commit themselves to doing what He says. He commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. I want to read through some passages this morning. Just When I read these passages, I'm not giving you the references. Some of them will be familiar to you, but I want you to imagine... Alds Chapel Bible family. And see the faces of the people that you are brothers and sisters in Christ with. Hear the description of what this is supposed to look like. Let the Spirit speak to your heart through the Word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. O no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in a full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Beloved, let us... Love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. 
We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How did the Spirit speak to you through those passages? Are there relationships in Alds Chapel, the Alds Chapel family, where you're not experiencing and demonstrating that, those descriptions? There's walls that are begun to have been built. Forgiveness that needs to be asked. Forgiveness that needs to be given. Someone that you need to seek out. Or a conversation that needs to happen. Reconciliation that God desires. So that this body of believers would emit His love throughout this community. Anyone hears about Ald's Chapel, they hear about the love of Christ. Where the love of Christ can be experienced. Realize Jesus left His Father in heaven, was sent by His Father to come and experience a broken family. At some point in His life, Joseph, His earthly dad, died. On the cross, His Father in heaven forsook Him. His own family thought He was nuts and they didn't get Him or His ministry. And He endured all of that to bring us into a family to never be forsaken, to never be abandoned, and to always know the love of our Father in Heaven. Easter Sunday is the day we celebrate that victory accomplished on Good Friday. And one of the fruits of that victory is that Jesus came to give us a new family. To take your biological family and allow you to see it redefined and redeemed through the lens of the Gospel. Yes, be grateful for the family of origins that we have. There's much to appreciate and value. But your family is broken too. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, they need a savior too. They're sinful. Don't idolize them. They make lousy saviors. So even in our biological families, we admit we are sinful and need a savior. For some of you, biological families are so broken that to even hear the term brings much pain. For you, Jesus has died and risen from the dead in part to give you a new family. United now and forever in him. Because of Jesus, you can look at people who have no biological tie to you and celebrate the common bond we share in the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus is so strong, so powerful, you actually have more in common with someone who's very much not like you in many ways, but united because of the strong bond that you share in Jesus. But this has to be your reality because you're trusting in Jesus Christ. Because you are walking in repentance and faith in Jesus. And Easter Sunday is a great day if you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. Easter Sunday is a great day to do that. I would love to, to walk you through that before we leave. There's other men and women in this church who would love to walk you through the gospel. If the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart this morning and is helping you see, I've never truly trusted in Jesus Christ. I've never come alive and become a new person and joined this eternal forever family. Don't leave here today without having a conversation with someone about how you become a Christian, how you begin to follow Jesus by repenting of your sins and trusting in his gospel. Father, I thank you 
that you have done everything necessary for us to be made right with you. Jesus is the hero who never lets us down. He is the Savior, the King of the universe. He did everything right and good and true and perfect. And all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So it's in Him that we place our faith and trust. It's in Him that we place our standing before God to be right and good. It's in Him that we're able to have access and be adopted into this forever family. So let it be true of everyone in this room. And if there's anyone in this room who has never come alive in Christ Jesus and the Spirit of God is speaking to them right now, let today be the day of their salvation as they trust in Jesus. There's no one like Him. Father, let it happen for Your glory by the power of Your Spirit and Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.